Well, good morning. Hope you're doing well. My name is Steve Yates. If you don't know me, I'm one of the pastors here at InTown Community Church, and I am so incredibly excited that we are beginning a new series today that we are calling Rewired, Intentional Practices for Spiritual Health. Today is an introduction, and introduction sermons are always a little bit different because we have to get all the chess pieces out and get them on the board before we start moving them around. And so today is going to feel a little bit like that. So to begin, I would actually like to give a couple of disclaimers to this entire series. Uh, and the first of these is how sermons work. Most of the time, um, when you think about a sermon, what you're thinking of is someone up here, a pastor, preaching from a passage of God's Word. And you might think of that as one kind of end of a spectrum we call that exegetical preaching. We're going to open up a passage of Scripture. We're going to tell you what God wanted his people to hear. Then kind of in the middle of a spectrum, we have more topically exegetical sermons. And that often happens here at InTown when we want to look at a passage or a book or a series of books, and we want to ask kind of a specific theme of that specific book or passage um, but we're still kind of talking from one spot. And then kind of over on the other end are topical sermons. And topical sermons are when we're asking kind of the entirety of God's word a question or a theme. We want to know what does God say generally to all of his people across all of these different contexts and circumstances about this specific thing. It's like a diet. There are good and bad aspects to, or, or not bad, but, but, but different aspects to all of these. We need all of them in our diet. I tell you all of this, though, to say that this series is very much a topical series. And because of that, we're going to jump around a lot in Scripture. Uh, so you'll want to have your Bible handy um, or your notebook handy instead of us focusing on one spot. Second disclaimer, and much more important to me, is a story about deadly bees. No, not these deadly bees. These deadly bees. So I had a wonderful professor of preaching at seminary. He was not named Jimmy and did not wear a bow tie. Uh, his name was Brian Chapel. Brian Chapel is actually now the stated clerk of our denomination. But Dr. Chapel had been a pastor for a number of years uh, before he was the seminary president and professor of preaching at Covenant Seminary. As he was a pastor for a number of years, he, he came to a point, and he tells the story this way, that um, he realized he had been a pastor for a long time in a number of different churches, and suddenly something hit him, and it hit him, he said, like lightning one day, and he almost quit as a result. And what hit him was this, that week in and week out, his sermons seemed to have the same application. And the sermon's application, each and every week, tended to be, <laughs> be something. Be humble. Be kind. Be good. Perhaps be more humble. Be more prayerful. Be more compassionate. In some respects, he said, at first, that, that's, that's not bad, right? These are all things that are in Scripture. We are called to be holy as I am holy. We are called to be worshipful, to be prayerful at all times without ceasing. 
to be sacrificial as Jesus was. And yet, Dr. Chapel writes that he realized while he was bringing this, which he thought was very biblical teaching, week in and week out to his people, his people were exhausted. And what he realized was that in, in the midst of real scriptural exhortation, which is a good thing, this sort of pastoral challenge from God's Word to God's people, what was lost was grace. What was lost was the fact that God already likes His people. He already loves His people. He already is accepting of His people. He already rejoices over His people before they evidence lifetimes of bees. In fact, Scripture says He knows us when we are still in our mother's wombs. There is a sense in which we can hear sermons with practical application, which we need, right? Because we need to live in a real world. We need to do real things in a real world. But there is a sense in which we can hear sermons with application. And we can hear that application kind of one of two ways, either as a challenge, yes, finally the pastor is going to give me something to do so I can make God happy, or exhaustion, despair, God, please don't tell me to do anything else. It was everything I could do just to get up this morning. It was everything I could do just to get the kids out this morning. It was everything I could do just to get dressed this morning. Scripture doesn't divorce these two things. It calls us to real things, hard things, good things, but it never does so outside of a wider meta theme. And that is that because of Jesus and because of his deep sacrifice for you and for me, God is already pleased with his people. Everything else is not a series of hoops for us to jump through, but is rather a lifelong journey of relationship, of delight, of romance, of glory, of joy, in which we get to spiral deeper and deeper and deeper into God's heart. I tell you all of that because this series, Intentional Practices for Spiritual Health, might have another name. Historically, what we're going to talk about over the next four weeks has been called spiritual discipline. And it could be very, very easy for you or I to hear all of the application that's about to come out as oh good, I finally get to hear how I can make God happy or how I can be a better Christian. Friends, you will never be a better Christian than you are today. In some ways, maybe that's disheartening to some of you, but actually it's really freeing. You're never going to be a better Christian than you are today because God does not evaluate your Christianity based on you at all. He evaluates your Christianity based on Jesus, and Jesus is already perfect. This is not weird GPA math. There's nothing you can get higher than a 4.0. And Jesus has already done it, and you can't. So take the A. But really, we need to hear sermons about this, not as an exhausting challenge, but as an invitation of delight and joy. So what we're going to do each and every week, because it's a topical series, instead of doing a scripture reading, 
I've asked Luke to do something, and that is to add in a, a kind of a liturgical element to prepare our hearts. Just so week in and week out, we can remember God first, God being happy first, God loving us first, and then our response of joy and delight being to put into practice the things he calls us to. So would you read with me? I'll start us. Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Lord Jesus, you are the vine and we are the branches. We long to remain in you. If we bear any good fruit, no matter how small, it is because of your promise that you will remain in us. We trust in you and not in our own work or striving to draw closer to God. Amen. All right. Rewired. Intentional practices for spiritual health. Each week we're going to talk about two things. We're going to talk about our world and we're going to talk about our gospel. Let's start out talking about our world. This was probably over a decade, maybe a decade and a half ago now, but, but there was one of those moments where I learned something. And I didn't learn it just from one place, so I can't actually tell you where I was when I learned it. It was almost as if the Holy Spirit just made this same theme shine through a bunch of books and a number of songs and a couple of conversations I had. And the theme was this. Everything is spiritual. What do I mean by that? Everything is spiritual. Well, most of the time, psychologists tell us in our brains, we have a number of what are called domains, areas of our life in which we categorize things unconsciously. We might think of them almost as cardboard boxes in the attic of our brains. Um, we have maybe a, a, an emotional domain of our lives. We definitely have a physical domain. We might have a social domain, and psychologists have added to this and said maybe a vocational domain or some sort of a hobby domain or an intellectual domain, lots of different things, but all will question where our spiritual domain goes. And I would venture to say most of us in America, and especially those of us who say we believe in Jesus or even just follow in the traditions of Christianity, we draw out our domains like this. We have a Sunday domain, and we have every other day of the week. And I don't mean this at all to say that we're somehow hypocritical or something like that. I just mean that anytime we think about our spirituality, anytime we think about our relationship with God, we are usually thinking about what happens on Sunday or even the things that are related to what happens on Sunday. They go in our Sunday box. And then everything else we do goes throughout the week. The problem is, is this is not actually how our brains work. Because even though psychologists do, in fact, say that domains exist, areas, groupings that our brain does, they're not in easy cardboard boxes on different shelves. 
They look like this. They're a soup. It's like, you know, looking at my office or my kids' toy boxes. It's just everything is piled on in and it all swirls together. When I say everything is spiritual, what, what God did in my life in that was to help me realize that the things that I do throughout the week, the things that I might think of are inconsequential, actually could have as much spiritual bearing on my life as what I do on Sunday morning or what I read on Sunday night or what I pray any time during the week. Now, this is, of course, to varying degrees and levels of consciousness. I'm not necessarily saying that your choice of, you know, Colgate or Crest toothpaste in the morning somehow has a deep bearing on your spiritual condition. But I am saying that the reverse is just as illogical. The reverse to say that anything you do that doesn't easily fit into a spiritual box doesn't affect you is ludicrous. My worship on Sunday is definitely affected by my mood with my kids. My worship on Sunday is definitely affected by my physical condition. My prayer or lack thereof is very much connected to what I'm thinking about, to what I'm dwelling on, to what I'm worrying about week in and week out. Everything is spiritual. The reason I say that is because as we get into what we're calling intentional practices for spiritual health, or more traditionally, spiritual disciplines, the temptation is to go back to this model and say, okay, great, we're talking about spiritual disciplines. That means we're talking about the Sunday Christian cardboard box and needing to get better tools, more resources, more information, more learning, more content into the box. And in so doing, I'm going to grow as a Christian. But that's not true in the sense that it negates that all the other things and choices you do during the week are actually also spiritual disciplines. You might not think of them that way, and you might not be aware of how they affect you, but how you relate to your spouse in the morning when you wake up affects your relationship with God. How you go to work, what you do, what you do at school, what you learn about at school, what you refuse to learn about at school, all of this all comes together and affects our relationship with God and with His world. So the first chess piece, if you will, that we can really put on the table here is we need to, we need to, to break in our brains the idea that spiritual disciplines or intentional practices are sort of like a list of either mantras or religious duties or things that we have dredged up from interviewing old monks or whatever that somehow can change us in a way that all the other stuff we do hasn't been working. It has been working. It's just not necessarily working in the way you want it to. Everything in your life is affecting every other part of your life. This was illustrated in a really great way for me by a, a philosopher named James K.A. Smith. 
Smith is a philosopher, works in many different areas, but at one point in his life, he was focusing on Greco-Roman religion, philosophy, and architecture, because especially for the Greeks and Romans, architecture was an area in which their philosophy was played out. And one day, he has a revelation. He has this revelation because he walks into something that now, to be honest, if you're under 30 or so, you might not know what I'm talking about. It's a mall. He walks into a mall, and um, he, he, I think he has his daughters in tow. He's not going with some weird cultural anthropologic idea in his head. He's going to buy, like, a tool from Sears or something like that. And yet, he walks into this mall, and he is suddenly blown away by the similarities between what he has just been studying and the mall. You see, he's just been studying about these Greek and Roman temples that would have been, you know, huge. If you've ever been inside the Pantheon or you've seen a, a picture, you know that there are these vast, vast areas. Um, there's space, there's columns, there's domes, there's statues everywhere. And the statues, of course, are of like perfect, mostly naked people who, um, as much as we laugh about that, actually like make you want to be like them, you want to live like them, you want to have power and authority and gold and everything just like them. And he's suddenly struck by this idea that he walks into a mall and it's the same thing. The fountains are there and the columns are there and the 20-foot posters of incredibly beautiful rich people that make you want to be like them are there. And he's blown away by this idea that even just a trip to the mall is affecting him and how he values what is beautiful, what is good, what is desirable, what is needed, what, what, what he should be about. So I'd like to ask you all just as sort of a, a takeaway for you, the, the, the first, if you will, takeaway of this sermon series, there is going to be homework. Don't worry, remember, God loves you first. But I want you to actually legitimately give some thought to this question. How are the patterns of my life and the cultures that I'm involved in affecting me spiritually? It's funny, this question is kind of an old school question when it comes to youth ministry. We used to talk about this all the time with just like, what do you watch on TV or what do you listen to on the radio that, you know, how are, how are the lyrics affecting your Christian walk or something like that? But I'll tell you just something about maybe that there's no radio anymore, but, but something about the, the idea of growing up and becoming an adult almost makes me feel like I've moved past all that. You know, I, I can make decisions now and listen to whatever I want or do whatever I want and not have it affect me. It's completely false. I think we need a re-engagement with our own awareness and our own discernment. Maybe not even judging. I'm not wanting you to go home and start, you know, burning books or breaking records or doing whatever. All I really want you to do is just be aware. What shapes you? Because as we move into talking about intentional practices, we need to be aware of the unintentional practices that we're already doing. All right. We said we were going to talk about world. Let's talk about some gospel. In fact, let's connect the two a little bit. And to connect the two, I want to ask you about hammers. 
some of you think about hammers. You don't think anything about hammers at all. Maybe you don't use a hammer a lot. Maybe you only use a hammer in certain situations in which you can hit a nail or not, but it's really, really not going to matter. You basically could be using a rock, and it would do the same thing. Others of you, maybe you work in, in contracting or you are a carpenter. It's part of your vocation. You know very well that a good, balanced hammer matters. I am only willing to pay $2 at the clearance section of Walmart for a hammer. You are willing to pay more than my firstborn child for the hammer that you will use maybe for the rest of your life. And some of you, in fact, are, are so connected, like you have your granddad's hammer or your great-granddad's hammer. Like that thing is still going. There's this sense of, of value and worth to it. If we think about everything shaping us, then one of the things that none of us can escape are sort of the, the, the meta elements of our world or our society because we all live in the same world. We all hear, speak the same language. We all drive on the same streets. We all live relatively, at least for today, in the same city, even if you're visiting with us. And so you know that we live in a, a capitalist, consumerist society. And I don't mean to make this political at all, but it's true, regardless of what you believe, that we have cultural elements that are inescapable, elements like um, a desire for efficiency or a desire for effectiveness. We care incredibly deeply about doing something well and we want to do that thing well as quickly as possible so that we can either get on to doing other things well or we can go rest and chill and have comfort. Regardless, it is deeply an American value to do good, hard work as well as you can, as quickly as you can. It's how we evaluate the medicines we take. It's how we buy the cars we buy. It's how we decide everything in our lives. Because of this, the, these, are, these are glasses that, then that kind of all of us have to agree with. If we are evaluating ourselves based on the unconscious or unintentional practices that we do that affect us spiritually, some things affect all of us spiritually. That idea of consumerism, of practicalism or utilitarianism, that is going to affect all of us in how we look at the idea of spiritual disciplines and intentional practices. Not only thinking about them like we introed this, talking about grace and talking about, you know, wanting to do better and do more or feeling exhausted, but also simply in the sense that, again, we can often think, if I have the right knowledge, the right tool, the right resources, or maybe even the right skill, knowing really how to swing it, it will be effective. And I'm reminded of, of a, a scout leader I had growing up. And this guy, this guy was a carpenter by trade, and he uh, did what I called the two-tap. He would take a nail, and he would immediately tap it once so it would stand straight up, and then he would bang it. And in one shot, without fail, this guy was driving like 18-penny nails, you know, huge, long ones, boom, straight into the wood. I was like, I want a hammer like that guy. 
Instead, I almost broke my thumb a couple of times. Um, but, but I think we, we have that sense. Oh, okay, in town, you're thinking about spiritual practices? Great. We're going to have a seminar on prayer. We're going to do a Bible study. We're going to have a 9.30 education hour. And now, of course, obviously, I'm not against any of those things. I'm so excited about Paul Miller coming. It's going to be a wonderful, wonderful time. But the mistake we make is this. Because our worldview has so shaped how we look at spiritual disciplines, the mistake we make is that we think the hammer is the point. The hammer's not the point. Have you ever tried to swing a hammer with a shattered hand? I don't care how nice the hammer is. I don't care if you are two-tap Steve's scout leader who could just bang him in. If you have a shattered hand, the nails are going nowhere. And the problem with us, friends, is not that we don't have better hammers. The problem is is that we have shattered hands. The problem is, is that without Jesus in ourselves, we are broken. We are not able to connect with God. We cannot work hard enough. We cannot drum up enough favor. We cannot be holy enough. We cannot seem spiritual enough to somehow get God's attention. It doesn't work like that. Again, as we open this series, praise God it doesn't work like that because we are failures at it. But it doesn't work like that. Here's what's awesome. What's awesome is this, that God is not a foreman who is waiting for our hand to heal before we can start banging nails. God actually uses spiritual practices, disciplines, actions, interactions that we have communally with other people and also with him to grow us and to heal us and to draw us closer to him. He is not waiting for us to get better. He is not waiting for us to become more competent. He is not not listening to you because your prayers are not framed a certain way. God desires you to grow and be healthy and is going to use your experience of reading his word, of spending time in solitude, of fasting before him, of praying, of learning the way others have prayed and modeling your prayers on theirs, of praying with other people, of having hospitality and having repentance and all the other spiritual disciplines we could sit here and list this morning. He will use those to draw you closer to himself. But he is not waiting on you to get better at them before he starts the process. The journey we are going to take together is a journey that is small, that is every day. It is not sexy. It is not the type of journey that I think our society is um, absolutely just obsessed with. 
It is not a yoga class. It is not a mantra. There is not a guru that I am going to introduce you to. There is not a silver bullet. Look at Psalm 1. Psalm 1 is, is uh, put here specifically, uh, not only in this sermon, but put specifically at the beginning of the book of Psalms as an orienting psalm, as an introductory psalm to all the rest. Listen to this, the first part of Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff that the wind drives away. Have any of you ever planted trees? You've planted trees and actually seen the tree grow? I have not. I don't think I have the patience for it. When I think of planting trees, I actually think of transplanting trees. You go to Home Depot, you buy something that looks mostly like a tree, and you move it into your lawn. Hopefully, it will rain enough that when you forget to water it, it will stay alive. No, I'm talking about like from the seed, from the seedling. You plant something, and it grows. My grandmother did. My grandmother bought her house. Uh, my grandmother and grandfather got married, bought, bought their house in 1953. And they had a great idea. It was one of the, kind of the, the early boom of the suburbs. So they had a full quarter acre backyard, which was a lot for them. And they uh, were hoping to get pregnant and have a child. And so my grandmother, I think hoping it was a boy, because she did this before she ever got pregnant, um, and, you know, girls don't play baseball. Obviously, they do, but she wanted a boy. She planted four trees in a baseball diamond pattern, hoping that one day they would grow up and my dad would be able to use them. Now, she vastly underestimated how long it takes oak trees in Florida to grow because I'm not sure my dad really was able to use them much. By the time he was a teenager and was beyond that small of a kickball field, these trees were only about this high. But by the time my dad, who grew up, married, and actually moved back into that same 1953 house, and then years later had a son himself, and that son grew up, I was playing kickball in the presence of giants. But it took 40 years for that to happen. Again, because we are so obsessed with efficiency and effectiveness, even though we wouldn't say it necessarily even out loud, we come to God and we come to His Word and we come to the work of His people and we expect quick change. We expect and we hire seeming experts to bring that change to us. And in an information age, we then buy books that can impart that to us. And when that doesn't work, we can find podcasts and other things. But this is what God says. You are planted. 
Now, all of those things are good, right? He literally says here, planted by streams of water. We're not randomly planting, you know, trees in the desert. We're not planting trees in the middle of La Vista. We're planting trees in good places. But even in a good place, it's going to yield its fruit. I'm pointing because there's a monitor, if you don't know, back there. It yields its fruit in its season. This series, y'all, is not going to be in town's attempt at New Year's resolutions. This is not 40 days to spiritual health. What this is, though, is an invitation of each of us to each other saying that we're not enough, but God is. And God is going to walk us together for however long he has us here or wherever else he has us, closer and closer to himself. And there is wisdom in walking alongside his word and wisdom in walking alongside other people who have also realized their own brokenness and their own need for God and have connected with him over centuries and centuries of practice. But you need to know this process is not about embracing God. It is not about a magic bullet. And it is not about getting spiritual fast. Here's what it's about, though. It's about a commitment. It's not a commitment I can make to you or Jimmy or anybody else. It's not a commitment that the members here got to make because of their magical words. It's a commitment you saw in baptism. Not Mia's commitment to God, but God's commitment to us. That he will keep us until the day of Christ Jesus. That he will not finish working on us until the day of Christ Jesus. And he does not fail in his promises. So I asked you to think about a question. I asked you to think about what affects me. But as another note of application this week, I'd like to ask you to end with a prayer for this week. This is my prayer for you, but I think it's my prayer. It needs to be our prayer for each other. In the book of Lamentations, chapter 3. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. My prayer for us is not that we would be the hip, flashy church that can promise much and deliver little, but that we could be the broken saints of God who know that God comes through on his promises. And so we will wait on the Lord. We'll wait together. We'll wait with open ears and open eyes and open hearts to learn, but we will wait on the Lord. As the worship team begins to come back up, I ask that we start that prayer even now.
May we not grow weary in our waiting on you. Would you fill our hearts with joy and strength, community and friendship, a knowledge of your presence and your delight over us, that we might wait on you. We pray this in your name. Amen.